Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I'm going to be continuing this mini-series that I've been doing that I call Social Life in the Anthropocene. If you haven't started from the beginning of that, uh, please do. It will hopefully make a bit more sense if you start from the beginning and have something that this podcast has been sadly lacking in, that is, some kind of organic wholeness to it. So today I'm going to be talking about the cultural impacts that changes in transportation and information infrastructure have on people. Now, I know that that sounds really boring, and as those words came out of my mouth, I went, ugh, you have to think of something that makes this interesting. You have to think of something concrete that shows exactly what is at stake. But to be honest, I'm having a little bit of trouble making this week in particular feel like an organic whole. So if anybody out there uh, has any suggestions about ways that I might be able to reframe this class, uh, facts that I might be missing, and stuff like that, please do not hesitate to reach out, because I would really like uh, some feedback. Uh, you can also reach out if you like this, uh, but I have a feeling that it might be a little bit more disjointed than some of the other episodes. So again, we're going to be dealing with two uh, distinct topics in this particular podcast. First, I'm going to talk about the rise of particular kinds of transportation infrastructures in the 18th and the 19th centuries. Uh, so canals, roads, railroads, and we're not going to be taking a technological history of this where we talk about, you know, improvements in canal design or stuff like that. We're going to be talking about this from a cultural perspective. How did these uh, transportation networks affect the way that people viewed themselves and interact with each other and all that sort of juicy stuff. Second, uh, I will talk about how these new kinds of transportation networks allowed for an unprecedented level of migration and global trade and bulk commodities and what that did to people's uh, uh, cultural fields. So first, let's talk about transportation. And let's start in the 18th century, uh, where in Britain, people are beginning to improve the transportation infrastructure. First, there's a bunch of what are called turnpikes, which are private roads uh, that are by act of parliament given to some sort of corporation that can charge people to use them. They're called turnpikes because to get into a city from a turnpike, you have a dude with a pike. And when you pay him, he lifts up the pike and lets you go through the road. <laughs> Seriously. And these turnpike trusts were profitable for the people who made them uh, in return for actually building the road, which required a lot of investment, and then maintaining the road, they got to charge everybody who used it. And in the second half of the 18th century, they became increasingly popular so that we might be able to speak to something called turnpike mania. In the 20 years between 1751 and 1771, there were 870 separate parliamentary bills that made turnpikes. Uh, there were over a thousand turnpike trusts over the 18th century that made 20,000 miles of road. So this road system was really good if it was expensive. 
And because of innovations in wagon design and road building, horse breeding, over the 18th century, there was a 40% reduction in freight charges, a 7.5 times reduction in consumer fares, and a 60% reduction in travel times. And additionally, it wasn't just land transport that improved, there were also a bunch of canals. Uh, the big one is the Duke of Bridgewater, who built a canal in 1751, connecting his coal mines to Manchester. Uh, but there were tons and tons and tons of them, people building these capital-intensive and quite technologically advanced uh, river systems that would allow them to be opened up for more river traffic. A canal length doubled in the 18th century so that by the end of it there were more than 2,000 miles of canals. And this combined to have the effect of making the country a lot smaller. People could send letters faster. People could go to different places a lot easier. People could send different goods to different places. And more than that, a culture of the road began to develop, where all of the people who walked up and down the lengths of the turnpikes and the roads to get to all these places would band together against bandits and loneliness and to pass the time and to talk at inns and to share stories. Um, there were Methodists who would frequently cross the country in order to get to various kinds of Methodist meetings, and they had a culture of uh, the road, uh, quite distinctive. But the real part of this story of transportation infrastructure changing culture comes in the 19th century, where we have the usual suspects of uh, technological history, the railway, the telegraph, the steamship, and maybe the telephone. And what happens is often described as a flattening out of distance and time. Yeah, the turnpikes were fast. They were faster than a lot of things at, at the time but the railways were an order of magnitude faster. A horse might go, what, six, nine miles an hour? A train could go 20, 30, 40 miles an hour. It was so different that people expected themselves to be physically damaged. There was, you know, discussion in medical uh, texts about people getting railway spine from uh, railway accidents or just of being discomposed by the stress of riding on a, a train. This is hard for us to imagine when trains to us seem so quaint so, you know, comfortable and cozy. But for people in the 19th century who did not really, you know, have much truck with trains, the train was scary and big and disruptive. The train changed the way that people viewed landscapes. Instead of going through it on the speed of a horse where they would see every village, watch the people, you know, toiling in that village, look at the rocks, smell the smells, the train went so fast that the landscape just became a landscape. It became a big panorama. And indeed, early railroads were uh, often in America used by tourists by pleasure seekers who were excited to experience this new speed of travel and to go to new kinds of spaces. Uh, when there were gravity railroads built in coal mines in the early 19th century, they were actually, you know, mobbed by tourists who went to look at them just to look at them. The increased speed and decreased cost of transportation led to a bunch of different things. One that we've already mentioned is the rise of tourism. These railways made it 
possible for people to travel greater distances just for fun, just to see something unusual. We might uh, understand the rise in Catholic countries of uh, particular kinds of pilgrimage sites as arising out of the railroad. Uh, in America, in the late 19th century, you have the rise of the old home movement, where urbanites were encouraged to travel for a you know long weekend to their ancestral villages to experience what things used to be like. And there they would, you know, I don't know, sample pies and sing the national anthem and look at national flags and stuff and experience this old America that the new technological world had destroyed. But of course, they would get to that old America on the railway, which was the very thing that supposedly destroyed it. And similarly, railways allowed people to live further away from one another. They created, in some degree, the new suburbs where middle and upper class people would live outside of the din of the city, but close enough so that they could work there. A lot of office opening times, particularly banks and government offices, actually had the railway at their heart. They would open at 10 or 11, which would give the uh, upper-class aristocrats who would live out in the country time to hop on the railway and go to work. And they would also similarly close at maybe four or five to give those same people time to get back home. And it also led there, especially in America, to be an increasing distance to between families. Because since it was so easy to get from place to place, people could live further and further apart from one another. But this had the knock-on effect of meaning that a lot of people had great deal of emotional attachment to people who were invisible. For us right now, it probably seems normal that your mother or father or brother or sister or girlfriend or boyfriend or childhood friend live far away, but you are still emotionally connected to them. And you're still emotionally connected to them because of these Information technologies that start out in the 19th century, just as you connect with your college friends via a Facebook group, so too did people in the 19th century keep in touch with their parents with, uh, by letters. They kept in touch with sweethearts by sending them, you know, pre-printed cards and Valentine's Day gifts. They created new worlds of distant discussion through the post and through sending one another newspapers and through sending presents on special days. Now let's talk about the second part of this episode, which is about how these same sorts of improvements in transport created new populations of people. So the big culprits here are, of course, as always, the railway, but also new medical technologies that allowed Westerners to survive in new places, uh, particularly quinine and also draining of wetlands. So. I want to open in 1830, where a guy named Archibald McLeod, uh, who is designing um, steamships for use in the British Navy, uh, looks at how steam power is going to transform the world. So he says, We have the power in our hands, moral, physical, and mechanical. The first, based on the Bible. The second, upon the wonderful adaptation of the Anglo-Saxon race to all climates, situations, and circumstances. The third, bequeathed to us by the immortal Watt, he's talking about the steam engine, 
By his invention, every river is laid open to us. Time and distance are shortened. If his spirit is allowed to witness the success of his invention here on earth, I can conceive of no application of it that would more receive his approbation than seeing the mighty streams of the Mississippi and the Amazon, the Niger and the Nile, the Indus and the Ganges, stemmed by hundreds of steam vessels carrying the gad tidings of peace and goodwill toward men into the dark places of the earth, which are now filled with cruelty. And indeed, British people expanded out to these seemingly dark places of the earth, and they did so on steamships and in railways. British people went to uh, where you might expect them to, the British dominions, or what we might call white settler colonies, Australia, Canada, the US, South Africa. But they also settled in the informal empire, in Argentina, Egypt, Kenya, Rhodesia, uh, South Africa, India, of course. The scale of this migration was huge. Between 1815 and 1914, 25 million people migrated away from Britain. And we're going to just talk about a couple of these uh, colonies. There were people who lived for long periods of time in India, but the pattern usually was that people would go to India for work and then move back to Britain to start a family or to retire. However, there were attempts to start more permanent settlements. The problem was that it was hard to get women out there. Uh, and indeed, there was what is called a fishing fleet of women who, in the 19th century, sailed annually to Calcutta. And they were filled with women who were looking for husbands among the upper-class officers and civil servants. After there was uh, the opening up of hill stations, um, which allowed people to live in India full-time uh, without the threat of summer malaria, uh, there was a self-contained British community that kept up some kind of British life. I wish I could remember the name of the winter capital of the Raj, but it's escaping me. Um, still, by 1921, the gender difference in colonial India was three to one. But India still had a lot of uh, culture there. It still had people who considered themselves British trying to make British cultural institutions. We've already talked about a big one, uh, which is IPA, the India Pale Ale. But our British colonialists would drink that IPA in social clubs that were modeled on British social clubs uh, that people might find in London. These had rules that were literally just clipped out of the book of the rule books of the United Service Club in London. But they were, you know, different. Not only were they in India and had to deal with problems like managing Indian servants, getting food, getting beer, dealing uh, with people who, for instance, walked uh, you know, a day to get to their club and brought their dog with them and then found out that there was a new rule that meant that no dogs were allowed in the club and they had to walk back home. They had to deal with that, but they also had to deal with the tricky problem of who was included in these social spaces that were incredibly powerful because they, you know, produced social capital. Of course, like most clubs, women were not allowed. But there was a question. Were Indians allowed in these places? Indians were often, you know, on the hierarchical order of things, they might not be as high as, say, the king or the queen, or, you know, as high as a colonial governor, but you know, educated, wealthy, 
uh, Indians who were in the civil service were often um, not completely discriminated against. And in many of these clubs, indeed, Indians started to be accepted as members, creating a new kind of social space where Indians and uh, Brits could interact outside of uh, more formal or static social circles. And let's think about how people got to these places. Well, there's some mystery about why certain areas were settled more than others. South Africa, for instance, had a lot of uh, investment from Britain. People invested a ton in the mines and the railroads there. But it did not have an equal amount of migration. Fewer and fewer people went from Britain to South Africa than did, say, to Canada or the United States. And one reason might be that people followed uh, cultural and information networks. People went to where they knew people. People went to where a family or a friend or a person from their town had gone. People went where uh, voluntary associations set up infrastructure for migrants. There was the development of something called the Orange Lodge Order, which started out as an Ulster Unionist organization, a political organization to urge the British Parliament not to give uh, Ireland a separate political uh, existence. But soon it became a community building frontier organization, going out to places like the American frontier and helping migrants out uh, with settling there. Similarly, there was uh, the Salvation Army, which did the same thing, the Female Middle Class Immigration Society, which, you know, predictably tried to get middle class women out to these white settler colonies so that they could help the men who were, you know, without wives and helpmeets and servants and stuff, and the Colonial Intelligence League and the South African Colonization Society, which sent women over to South Africa as teachers. Now, when these uh, British people were there in these Neo-Europe's, as you might call them, they took on an idea of Britishness that they then gave back to the uh, metropole, that they then gave back to the UK. And, and I also want to emphasize the emotional toll that all this migration took on people. We discuss with, you know, blithe ease many millions of people going on uh, the Pacific Ocean in a steamship to go and settle a strange country. But we have to remember that this was really difficult for people and they were often incredibly homesick, especially when they were settling, you know, distant frontier regions like working on a sheep station in Australia. Well, I hope that this has been somewhat enjoyable. Thanks very much for listening. I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the series, please rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tell people on Reddit that they should listen to me and give me money. Please give me money. Or an email. Give me an email. Or talk to me on Twitter. Or do any of those things that you do to internet stuff that you like. Thanks very much. And I will be back later this afternoon for a discussion of Strangers in the City. Thanks very much.